Okay. Um, uh, let's let's get rolling. I, I'm 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 starting late. I apologize, um, but we'll see what we can do. Um, we're gonna um, let's let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we are mindful tonight of the gift of um, our brains and how you've structured uh, them so that we can learn habits, so that we can accomplish complex tasks, so we can do all kinds of amazing things for your glory. We're also conscious that um, so often. Our, our brains are um, part of the flesh that Paul decries as his own enemy. And so we pray, Lord, that today you'd help us uh, as, we, as we sort of end this uh, class and as we conclude our, our thoughts on habit formation, help us to know how to renew our minds, uh, how to shed the old life uh, that was um, of the flesh and put on a new life of the Spirit uh, through the renewing of our minds. And we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. <coughs> All right, so tonight I want to do three things. I, I want to uh, finish our conversation from last week about breaking addictions and talking about addictions a little bit and then spend a little bit of time just checking in on how your homework's been going and, and how your habit formation stuff is, is going. And then I, I wanted to end by talking change, so how we apply some of the, the big ideas of habit formation to the church or to the world uh, beyond just ourselves and our own lives. So just briefly to, to recap kind of where we were last week. Last week we were talking about addictions and uh, we used this working definition from David Linden. Addiction can be defined as a persistent compulsive drug use or behavior in the face of an increasingly ne negative life consequences. Uh, and we, we actually used the uh, passage in Romans 7 where Paul says, you know, the good I don't want to do, uh, the, good, the, the good I want to do I don't do, the evil I don't want to do that's what I do. Uh, this sense that um, he's, he's trapped in the habits of sin, that's what addiction is, right? It's this trap that we get into where uh, we don't want to be there, but we can't get out of it. Uh, and we talked about the idea that addiction is a disease and what that means. And we talked last week a little bit about how to break addictions. And I want to pick up where we left off there tonight, finish that conversation, and then and we'll, um, anything we want to say about addictions, we'll talk about that, and then we'll go on for the rest of our uh, evening to organizational change. So... <clears throat> Briefly reminding you, we talked about four components of breaking addictions. Uh, acceptance being the first one that we can't force people to acceptance. We can raise the bottom sometimes. We can help them hit rock bottom sooner. Um, and <clears throat> we talked about the idea of uh, pain being God's response to human sin occasionally. Uh, that, that God uses pain as a way to wake us up. So that idea of helping somebody hit the bottom sooner is a way to help wake them up. But ultimately, it's up to them, right? We can't force anyone to accept their addiction. And there's really, there's really no healing until you have acceptance. Uh, and then we talked about external support last week. Uh, we, we briefly uh, flew into the belief in community because we discussed those before. We mostly talked last week about um, how we are, are called to support people who have addictive behavior in our lives. So we talked a little bit about uh, the danger of codependence, about how uh, if we're not careful, they're addiction becomes, um, they become our addiction, managing their addiction becomes our addiction, uh, and how our moods and our lives are uh, rooted into whether they're having a good day or a bad day with their, with their behavior or their drug use, and how danger that code, dangerous that codependence is. And then we talked a little bit about um, just the, the, the idea that we'll, we'll do what's helpful for you to get sober, uh, but we're not going to help you cover up your disease, we're not going to help you uh, engage in your disease um, we, uh, we're not going to exacerbate your addiction in that sense. Um, I, I wanted to pick up tonight ab about uh, the, the last two ideas about habit modification and uh, relapse, okay? So <clears throat> uh, we, we've talked about habit modification before, so this is mostly recap. Um, we've talked about the idea that if you're changing an existing habit, uh, you, you begin by um, saying it's hard to change cues and rewards, but routines are easier to substitute. Uh, and so if I have... Uh, a habit of alcohol use, um, my cue may be that I'm hungry or I'm lonely or I'm angry or I'm tired, uh, and my reward may be an alleviation of those symptoms, and my routine is engaging in alcohol consumption. So uh, the idea is very simply, we, we substitute a new routine. When I feel ha uh, hungry, ang angry, lonely, tired, or whatever my cue is, and I want those symptoms to go away, I need a new routine, right? Uh, and so now, this is more or less the way AA works. AA teaches you to substitute uh, the routine of drinking 
uh, with the routine of talking to your sponsor or uh, with the routine of um, uh, uh, going to a meeting. Uh, so um, this is in, let's see if I can pull this up real quick. <coughs> this is just a, one of these habit loop graphics from the book that uh, we've been using. Um, so really simply, uh, you've got a, the cue of, of um, feeling um, negatively. You've got the routine of alcohol, the reward uh, of feeling better, and they simply swap it out, right? They take out that routine and they put in the routine of talking to your sponsor. So the idea is every time you feel um, that urge to drink, every time you feel that cue that leads you to drink, you simply pick up the phone and you talk to somebody who loves you for five minutes or ten minutes, uh, somebody who knows you and knows your problems and knows your secrets, and you say, hey, this is what's going on today, and I'm, and I'm feeling like I want to drink, and they talk to you about what matters in your life, and let's talk about your kids and your wife and your family and how much you love them and how important they are and uh, what's coming up at work today. And at the end of that 5, 10, 20-minute conversation, uh, you feel better, right? You've connected to another human being. You've, you've um, had your concerns heard. Uh, all that stuff begins to change, uh, and you get the same experience, relief, but now you're receiving that relief through human interaction instead of through alcohol consumption. Right? R- really basic, um, but, but pretty essential. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I would say that changing a habit and changing an addiction and this sort of routine replacement are basically the same. It's just a lot harder, right? I mean, if my habit is um, uh, getting up to get in the middle of the day, that's pretty different than my habit being consuming alcohol at extreme quantities on a regular basis, right? So, yes, it's more difficult to change the, the habit, but the, the, the procedure is similar, okay? Um, it's just that in, in dealing with an addiction, that community support is so much more critical. And I, I can probably break my habit of getting cookies by myself. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to break my habit of um, uh, whatever, my my eating disorder or my nicotine use or my heroin consumption or my um, computer addiction by myself. I, I, I'm probably going to need help for that. Okay. <coughs> uh, th- that makes sense, right? Nothing, nothing new there. Okay. Um, then the, the, the last piece of uh, addiction that I think is really critical for us is, is a conversation about relapse. Uh, <coughs> and, and the reality is that for most addicts, at some point, you're going to experience some kind of relapse, right? At some point, uh, you're going to get sober, get clean from your addiction, uh, and you're going to fall back. And we've talked before about a little bit why that happens. Um, the, the main thing being that, number one, habits are durable, right? They never go away. Uh, and, and number two, um, we, we, in periods of extreme stress, we tend to revert back to old habits, especially old addiction habits, okay? So uh, you, you may be doing pretty well, and then all of a sudden a crisis happens, someone in your life dies, and, and that triggers something that sends you back to where you used to be. Um, obviously, not everybody relapses. And obviously, the goal of, of addiction recovery is that you get past that, right? You, you no longer have to relapse. Um, but it's pretty critical for those of us who are supporting addicts and also uh, those of us who deal with addiction to recognize that relapse is not um, a, a complete failure, right? Relapse doesn't mean that you've gone beyond the pale of forgiveness and hope. Uh, and, and I think sometimes... Um, I was having this conversation with somebody um, er- earlier today, but sometimes I think um, we recover from something uh, and people are really supportive of that recovery and they come alongside us and they love us and they're proud of us and they celebrate our victory and then um, we relapse and, and we're afraid they're going to reject us, right? Afraid, well, everybody gets one um, freebie, but boy, I'm back in my old habits and no one's going to love me anymore. Uh, and, and if you have people that are really supporting you in your addiction recovery, that's not going to be the case, right? Uh, If you have people who really support you in addiction recovery, they're going to know that relapse is ordinarily part of addiction recovery. And it happens to everybody, uh, many people. uh, And our job is simply to do what we were doing before you relapsed, right? Which is, uh, before you recovered, rather. Which is to love you, to do whatever we have to contribute to your recovery, to not do things that that allow you to cover up uh, and and, and keep it a secret. uh, And to recognize that that, that relapse is not a super sin. It's not a greater stigma than the first sin, it, 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 it happens, okay? When it happens, we just love people and we love them through it. Um, so we need accountability, we need grace, and we need process, right? We need to say, all right, um, this is a big deal. It does matter that this happened. Um, uh, we're working to sobriety here and we're back into this in behavior. We want to get out of it again. What do we need to do? 
Um, we need a process. And we got, I still love you. Right? I mean, I, I still support you. I'm so happy to be in this with you. You're not alone. Um, this doesn't turn me off. Uh, I'm not giving up on you. Um, let's get back on our horse. Right? Um, there are times when relapse happens once, right? You, um, you have a really bad event in your life and you go out and drink and you come back and you regret it. There are times when relapse happens and relapse can last for years, right? So you know, I know folks that uh, got sober from pretty serious addictions and, then, uh, and were sober for six, nine, ten months and then relapsed for two years and then got sober again. Um, and so the, the hope is that in the midst of that cycle, when we're still the support, they're able to say, hey, we love you, we want you to be healthy again. What do we need to do to keep you healthy? That's what we're going to show up and do. Um, Jesus has this line in, in the Gospels where somebody says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, not seven times, but... Yes, yeah, 70 times, seven times, right? A, a lot of times, right? Uh, his point is, we never stop forgiving. Um, <clears throat> you know that old joke that, that men... How, do, how does it go? Men forget but never forgive and women forgive but never forget. Um, th th there's an important distinction in there, right? So uh, to, to forgive doesn't mean that I... Um, it might mean this with God, right? When God forgives us, it's like we never send ever. Um, but we're not called to live quite that way, right? So if, um, if Howie's living in my household um, and uh, Howie's addicted to cocaine and... He relapses, and I say, hey, we need some accountability. What are we going to do differently? And we come up with a plan, um, and I say I forgive him. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop making sure that there's no lines in the bathroom. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop wondering why there's a rolled-up dollar bill on the coffee table, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not forgiving in the sense that I'm being um, foolish. Jesus says, be as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents, right? So I'm still um, cautious and careful and I know that as, especially once you've relapsed, that it's going to be potentially a while before you're healthy again. I'm probably going to pay more careful attention to you. Forgiveness doesn't mean I'm not paying attention, right? Forgiveness just means uh, that I, I, I no longer hold ill will towards you. I want your good, not your evil, right? I want good for you, not evil for you. Um, and in this sense, good for you means I need to be extra aware and extra careful to help you, right? Provide both that accountability and hopefully some prevention for you, um, uh, <clears throat> yes. Well, um, this is just my opinion, but I would say uh, in that situation, if you have somebody who's, who's relapsed uh, and they've gotten sober and they relapse and they're back in the habit, um, uh, my initial response would be to say, hey, you know what, if you tell me about it, if we're honest about it, uh, if we can talk about it, I forgive you, we go forward together. Um, and then I would say we need a, we need a plan. What, what, what do we need to do to get you healthy again? Um, and then honestly, um, though I have some hope that I didn't have before, because I know you've done it, I, I'm kind of back to where I was before. So if you can't honor the rules and you can't stop using in the home, then you can't live in the home. Um, and it doesn't mean I don't love you, but I'm enabling you by giving you a safe place to use cocaine. I'm not going to do that. Um, if you can't honor the rules and uh, you can't um, follow this sort of path to healing, then I'm, I'm not going to support you financially. Um, and, and there may be other consequences, right? So this, is, this gets back to that whole raising up the bottom thing. Um, I don't want you to hit rock bottom in an alleyway somewhere ODing and no one around and you die. I want you to hit rock bottom because um, you sit down with me and I say, you can't ever play with my kids again until you get healthy, right? Uh, and you, maybe you love your nephews or nieces or grandkids or whatever they are, and I'm sorry. Um, we're going to have some new, new rules about how we interact as a family. Um, maybe you're a parent and you say, hey, you know what, I love you, but you can't come home for Christmas if you're going to come home and drink, right? You can come home and not drink, but, but I can't have that in my house. I can't help you do that. Um, and, 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 and ultimately, you know, those aren't, I mean, it comes across as a, a, a threat, but it's not a threat, right? It's simply saying, I will not help you hurt yourself anymore. So if you're going to hurt yourself by living in my home, then I don't want you living in my home because I don't want to make it easier for you. 
Uh, and if you're going to hurt yourself by coming in for Christmas, or if you're going to hurt yourself by staying in college, you're going to hurt yourself by whatever, I will do nothing that contributes to your addiction and everything that contributes to your recovery. Um, so at that point, we're, we're just back to dealing with you as an addict, and we're hoping that you, know, you, you get on the path to sobriety again. Now, uh, uh, there's a big difference in my mind between somebody who is, is working hard at their sobriety, sobriety and stumbles occasionally and somebody that uh, is, is, is not working on their sobriety, right? So if, they, if they're keeping secrets, if they're not willing to admit what's going on, if they're not engaged in some kind of support group system, whether that's if it's AA or whether that's NA or whatever that might be, um, if they're not meeting some basic standards we set for a household, even in my house it'd be, are you going to church on Sundays and that sort of thing, um, then we're really not in this process together. Uh, if we're in the process together and you stumble, that's different, right? So if I know you're going to NA all the time and I know um, you're praying and working on your connection to Christ and I know um, that you've um, taken some significant steps and you stumble once or twice or three times, that's not the end of the world, right? Because we're in the process together. The, the, I have to be careful I'm not being played, right? So if you're pretending to be in the process of healing, but actually it's just the way to get around my rules, that's different. But if I really believe you're working on your healing, then I'm going to keep helping you. So if you living in my house is contributing to you getting better, even if you're not better yet, you're welcome in my house, right? Uh, it's, when, it's when what I'm doing is making you worse that I'm not going to keep doing it. Does that make sense? So there's not like a, a right and wrong in this. I mean, there's... It's every case, it's a case-by-case case, um, situation for every person. Uh, good question. Other, other questions? Um, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there with Pam. Pam. Yeah, I'm not sure I verbalized that perfectly, but, I, but what I wanted to say was um, forgiving doesn't mean forgetting, right? I mean, in, in a nutshell, like I need to remember um, what your patterns of addiction are so that I can help you. And I got to be as wise as serpents about it, right? I have to be savvy and know, okay, yeah, I forgave you, but if you're out every night until 3 a.m. and you tell me you're playing with your new band um, and you come home a little bit wobbly, I don't really think you're playing with your new band, right? I've forgiven you, but I haven't forgotten that you're an addict. Yeah, yeah, great. Other, other questions about uh, addiction or how we help people in addiction or... Um, Anything along those lines? Bearing in mind that I'm not an expert at this at all. <laughs> okay? Um, I, I want to say, um, I want to say that this, this that, 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 that the issues around addiction tend to be pretty stigmatized. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, and we mentioned this last week, but we have this idea that, you know, people who are addicts are addicts because they're weak-willed or, you know, whatever. And, and, and that's not real, right? I mean, we're, we're, in terms of purely science, we're pretty sure that addiction is, um, is genetic and it's disease-related um, and it's not about a weak-willedness that leads you to be an addict. Uh, and so, you know, the, the big takeaway for me in a dealing with addiction is um, you're not responsible for your disease, but you are responsible for your recovery, right? So um, if you relapse you're still not responsible for your disease, but you are responsible for your recovery, right? So how do I help you recover, um, but let you know that I love you and I don't think you're less because you're an addict, right? um, And as I said before, you know, the way, the way Paul describes sin is the same way that I describe addiction, right? That, and that we're all sinners. Even if we don't all have uh, the addiction disease, we all have an addiction to sin in some form. It may not be a mind-altering substance, uh, and it may not be a a behavior that you can go to Gamblers Anonymous for. Um, but we all are addicted to ourselves. We're all addicted to that self-centeredness that, that Paul describes as the flesh. And so um, my hope is when we deal with folks with addiction, we, ha we have some kinship, some recognition that, hey, you're not that different. From okay. Um, let me pause there for a minute. Um, and, and, and let's uh, change gears. And I'm just curious. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about organizational leader, uh, organizational change. But before we do that, I'm curious, anybody, any feedback on how your new habit or habits are going, uh, the ones you're changing or starting? Anybody have major progress to report or major frustration to report? Or I'm just curious how it's going. Anybody want to share? A lot of pressure. Come on, Joel. <clears throat>
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Awesome. That's cool. Awesome. I love that. Okay. I'm just going to repeat that for anybody who couldn't hear and for anybody listening online. So Joel said that uh, his, his, his habit he's trying to change was that he tends to, I do this too, stays up too late at night watching TV, uh, and he'd like to, number one, swap that out for a habit for reading, uh, and number two, um, hopes that that would lead to being more well-rested throughout the day. Uh, and that's going pretty well. And he said a cue which is a, a quacking on his phone. That's great. I love it. Um, awesome. Okay, that's wonderful to hear. Good. Great example. Um, anybody else? Good one. I'll sit here and let it be uncomfortable for a minute. Good show. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Hmm. <laughs> hmm, that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, the, the quote, uh, rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I built my life by J.K. Rowling. Rebuilt my life. That's great. And Rowling's a firm believer in Jesus Christ as well, which is pretty neat. Um, in fact, she's often said, if you, were, if you know her faith, if you, she wrote all the Harry Potter books, and if you, she said, before they ended, if you know my faith, you know how the books will end. And of course, they ended with the story of Jesus. Which is pretty neat. Yeah, that's cool. Awesome. Thanks, Cheryl. Good. Anybody else want to share? Okay, Jean. Uh-huh. That's okay. I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that somebody is, you know, Im- imperfect. It's good. That's great. So Jean's goal was uh, similar to Joel's, actually, going to bed earlier, getting better rest. Uh, And she said uh, not having as much success as he has, um, but when she does do it, finding it really makes a difference for her day. Um, I I think it's wonderful, Jean. And I think, you know, part of the challenge of habit formation is even if we have all these skills and whatnot, um, it's it's not easy, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're changing something that's pretty ingrained or you're adding something that's not at all ingrained. Um, and, and if it always goes smashingly, I'll be surprised, right? My expectation is that um, most of us will struggle with changing habits. If, if no one struggles with changing habits, no one would come to this class for darn sure, right? Um, so uh, I, I think it's healthy and good, and I think it's also really healthy to be able to say, hey, you know what, I'm still working on this. Uh, I'm still working on changing this habit. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I've been talking about... Um, my, my habit of sort of snacking in the middle of the day and, and, I, and I shared with you guys that part of what was helpful for me was digging into that and figuring out, okay, why am I doing that? Like, what's the cue? What's the reward? Why, why am I engaging in that? Um, and I dug enough to figure out eventually it wasn't because I was hungry. I knew it wasn't hungry. Uh, I, I was tired and I finally said, oh, well, it's because I'm going five hours every night and five hours of sleep is not enough for me and that's why I'm exhausted. Uh, and when I'm exhausted, I eat and eating wakes me up a little bit. Um, and so then my goal started to change. Okay, well, maybe I'm not trying to just stop snacking. What I need to do is get better rest so that I don't have that need to snack. Boy, there's a little bit of a theme here going on with the sleeping, right? Um, and um, I would say that I've done better on the sleeping. I've been going to bed at 11 instead of midnight, which is pretty great. 
um, semi-consistently, but I'm still snacking. <laughs> so for me, that means, all right, well, I've got to go back and say, well, maybe, maybe there's more to it. Um, or maybe now that I've worked on the sleep, I need to work on, I mean, so, so th- these things don't always just line up beautifully, right? It would be great if they did. Um, but this is hard work. It's supposed to be hard work. Everything worth doing, uh, everything valuable is going to be hard, right? Um, okay, uh, I'm going to check in a little bit. So I'm interested to hear more stories, but I- I'm going to push on a little bit and uh, into organizational change. And obviously later, if you want to talk to me about habits, I'd love to hear your individual stories as well. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about keystone habits, um, which is kind of what Joel and Gene and I are talking about related to sleep, uh, and, and also how we change organizations. So um, Alcoa, which is short for the Aluminum Company of America, um, is a huge, I think they're probably multi-billion dollar business, but it's a huge business. Uh, Alcoa has been around since the 1800s. Uh, and in, I think, 1987, they got a new CEO, a guy named Paul O'Neill. And the story of Paul O'Neill, I know Paul O'Neill. Um, Paul's an interesting guy. Okay, um, so Paul was, uh, for two years, he was the Treasury Secretary for uh, George W. Bush. Um, or George H.W. Bush? No, George W. Bush, I think. Um, but uh, he was at Alcoa for like 13 years, I believe, as their CEO. And before that, he worked actually for the Office of Management and Budget uh, in D.C., uh, so Paul O'Neill was, was offered this job to be CEO of Alcoa, big company, but a company was having some troubles. And one of their big troubles was uh, management and labor couldn't get together, right? They were arguing about all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then there, there was just a sense that the leadership had been kind of leading them in bad directions. They were still a very profitable company, but uh, stockholders were getting kind of nervous. And, and so everyone was excited when they decided there was going to be a leadership change. Uh, but then people said, hey, we're, we're hiring this guy named Paul O'Neill. And the excitement was tempered. This was a kind of an unknown quality. He hadn't been in business. He'd been in the government. He was a bureaucrat. Uh, so Paul O'Neill comes in, and he starts looking at the, the business of Alcoa in general, and he says he needs um, a lever to pull. He needs one thing he can do to, to correct all of the various challenges across the company. Uh, and so he decides it's going to be worker safety. And so he goes to the first shareholders meeting, uh, and he gets up and he says... Uh, I, I know you guys are used to a lot of speeches at these meetings about profit margins and then a lot of complaints about taxes and then a lot of motivational speeches about win-win margin solutions and all this stuff. I'm not going to do that today. I want to talk to you about worker safety. Worker safety is going to be the most important priority for Alcoa while I'm their CEO. Uh, and uh, worker safety is going to be the one metric you're going to use to measure our success. Um, and at this point, everybody in the audience is thinking, oh no, this guy's going to be a disaster, right? Uh, and so he goes on to say, uh, in fact, because worker safety and safety in general is so important for us, I want to take a minute and point out to you all the emergency exits in this room. Uh, so there are emergency exits behind you on the left and right and two in the front. If there is a fire in a case of emergency, I hope you will walk out carefully and calmly and assemble outside the building and then check to make sure everyone you know is there. Uh, don't come back inside after, after a fi- in the case of a fire. Any questions about that? Uh, and the whole room is like, this is a disaster, right? Like, is this a joke? What's happening? This guy can't possibly be the new CEO. Uh, so uh, one of the investors kind of raises his hands and says, uh, I'm just curious about inventories. And he says, no, I don't think you understood me. Um, we're not talking about inventories today. We're only going to talk about worker safety. Worker safety will be the metric we use to evaluate our success. So he finishes his talk. Everybody, all the shareholders, all the investors rush out of the room. Everybody who's uh, a, a financial advisor gets on the phone uh, and they, and they uh, in fact, there's a, a quote from, in the book from um, a, a guy who, who said he left, uh, got on the phone and said, you're not going to believe this. Alcoa's hired this horrible hippie to run their company. Sell all the stock you own immediately. Get out, get out, get out. Um, he went on to say that, say that was the worst advice he ever gave anyone in his entire career. Uh, a year later, Alcoa was more profitable than it had ever been. Um, by the time that O'Neill ended his tenure, um, they had... Um, I think their stock had increased five-fold. Um, they said that if you invested five, uh, if you invested a million dollars when O'Neill became CEO, you would have earned over the next 10 years a million dollars worth of dividends and $4 million of um, valuation in your stock. Right? So unbelievably successful. When he left, it was a, they, they increased their market cap by $27 billion. Um, now, how did he do that? Right? So Paul had this idea uh, that worker safety could be uh, sort of a keystone habit 
the lever he pulled to change everything in the company. So uh, uh, he recognized that it was one of the few things that management and labor could both agree on, right? Nobody's going to disagree with worker safety and think that's a good idea. Uh, and he recognized uh, that he could use it to change some of the antiqu antiquated structures that, that existed throughout the company. So, for example, um, um, Paul created a, 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 basically a habit loop, right? In fact, I probably have a picture of the habit loop. Uh, but basically, the, the habit loop is um, if you um, see something unsafe, that's your cue, uh, or, if, or if an incident happens in your plant, right, there's an injury of any kind, um, that's your, your routine is you immediately write a report and send it all the way to the CEO. So it goes all the way up the ladder. Um, and along with that report has to come several uh, tangible ideas about how you can correct that problem in the future. It has to happen within 24 hours of the incident. Uh, and the reward is only those uh, directors, managers, supervisors who complete this uh, routine will ever be able, available for promotion. So if you want to get promoted in the business, you have to submit these reports in a timely fashion. Okay? Um, what happens over time is all of the managers and supervisors and um, plant managers and all the folks up the chain that want to advance are very invested in this process. And so um, they create this incredible communication between the line workers and the CEO. So stuff starts moving up at an incredible rate. Uh, he, he, uh, Neil makes it incredibly clear that this is not a negotiable topic. In fact, at one point he even fires his best performing plant manager for not uh, filling out a routine, or not filling out a, uh, a report and getting it to him in a timely fashion. Um, they actually were already one of the safer companies to work for, um, but aluminum manufacturing is in general a dangerous thing, right? You're dealing with molten metal and you're dealing with all kinds of stuff. Um, but over time, uh, they become uh, one of the safest companies to work for in the world, period. Not, not like metal working companies, but statistically, you're more likely to get injured as an accountant and most accounting firms than at Alcoa, right, working in molten aluminum today. Today, I think the, uh, when he left, I think the injury rate was 0.2 out of every 100, 0.2% um, of every um, 100 workers were injured in, in the course of a year, something like that. Um, now it's actually 0.125. Uh, uh, what kind of happened alongside that is he was able to change the whole company through that habit loop of that routine and reporting. So, uh, for example, the organized labor had been very resistant to any individual performance statistics on workers. They didn't want you to know how well a particular worker was working. Um, but now they needed it because they had to say uh, how that worker was doing when they, they were injured, what was going on. So they were okay with that change. The management had been very resistant to allowing line workers to stop the assembly processes because it's very expensive to do that. Uh, and they just wanted them to work harder. Uh, and now they had to stop assembly processes when there was a crisis because safety was the most important priority. Um, they, they had um, uh, all these ancillary benefits that happened beyond beginning really safe. Um, this communication that happened between the line workers and the CEO stopped being just about safety and became about other things as well. So there was a line worker who had this idea of, of restructuring the painting, the, the painting machines for aluminum siding in their plant. He had the idea for years but never told anybody and finally said, well, if you want me to tell you about my safety concerns, maybe I should tell you this too. Uh, he passed it up the line and ended up doubling their profits within a year for aluminum siding just by restructuring those painting machines. One of the um, innovations they did to spread uh, safety information, this is 1980, okay? They created an electronic system of communication that was worldwide between every plant. This is before email. They, 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 they basically made an email system well, boy, that was pretty useful for things other than safety reports, right? So all of a sudden, the Brazilian plant is immediately uh, telling their New York office uh, what inventories are available so that they can trade more effectively on the stock market, right? So all these incredible synergies happen, all because of this one basic goal of wanting to have uh, enhanced worker safety. Right? Uh, now, the idea is uh, that there are these, uh, these keystone habits, like uh, safety in, in the case of Alcoa, that, that allow us to change... Um, systems, our lives, but also organizational systems uh, to an incredible degree that would not be possible if we came in and said, I want to change your system, right? So if you walked into Alcoa and said, I want to restructure the relationship between organized labor and management in this company, I want to create an email system before email exists, uh, and I want the line workers to start reporting information to the CEO about ideas to improve the company, it wouldn't happen, right? Uh, but because they had this lever to pull, they had this keystone habit, it changed everything. 
Um, uh, by the way, um, this is also true in our individual lives. Um, there have been really interesting research that talks about exercise as a keystone habit. Right? So a lot of reports have come back and said uh, that people who exercise, even as infrequently as once a week, um, start changing other unrelated patterns in their lives, often unknowingly. So people who exercise tend to eat better, they're more productive at work, they smoke less, they show more patience with colleagues and family, they use their credit cards less frequently, and they say they feel less stressed on a daily basis. Right? That's just people who exercise uh, as infrequently as once a week. Now, let's be clear, it's not a one-to-one thing, right? Exercising doesn't cause those things, but somehow it's one of these keystone habits that equips us to let change happen elsewhere. Uh, other stuff that's just kind of fun research, um, dinner with your family in the evening uh, tends to have incredible ancillary benefits. So research has shown that uh, families that eat dinner together with their kids seem to raise children with better homework skills, higher grades, greater emotional control, and more confidence, which is pretty interesting. Um, this is my favorite one. Making your bed in the morning is a keystone habit, right? So research has shown that people who make their bed in the morning um, have better productivity at work, a greater sense of well-being, and stronger skills at sticking with a budget, right? Um, so uh, somehow some of these habits tend to change things way beyond themselves. Um, there's this, uh, um, oh gosh, the, the other one I'm not going to get a chance to mention, but um, there's a really interesting research about weight loss, and they found that um, keeping a food journal, uh, just writing down what you eat in the course of one day, uh, is dramatically effective in helping you lose weight because it causes you to, that doesn't help you lose weight at all, right? But that habit causes other habits. So people who tend to keep a food journal also tend to start um, being more selective about what they eat and tend to uh, exercise more and tend to um, um, buy food less often at restaurants and eat food more often at home and cook healthier meals and bring snacks to work that are healthier and all this stuff. Um, so uh, part of the reason that works, part of the reason that uh, these, these keystone habits exist uh, is, is the idea of small change or, or small wins. Um, that that um, when we have sort of small victories, it begins to equip us to think we can succeed more. Um, there's a, a, a story in the book about Michael Phelps. Uh, and, and Michael Phelps, you know, this incredible swimmer, uh, has, a, has a habit of um, kind of this, he says it calls a videotape, uh, of habit of running this videotape in his head of what his, his swim meets will look like. And it begins when he wakes up in the morning, the videotape, uh, his mental image of what's going to happen, begins when he wakes up in the morning, goes all the way through to the end of the meet. Uh, and then he gets up and he goes through that routine. Um, and, and for Phelps, every time he does one of those steps, it's like he's winning, right? So he gets up and he has the right breakfast and he's won breakfast. And, he, and then he goes on and he stretches the right way and he's won stretching. And then he goes on and... Uh, he does his normal practice laps in the pool, and he's won that. And then he goes on, and he puts on his uh, swimsuit, which is hard to put on, apparently, and, uh, and then he's won that, right? Uh, and when he finally gets in the pool to jump in, um, he's so used to winning that it's just the next natural thing, right? that it's just all those small victories prepare him to believe that it's inevitable he's going to keep succeeding, right? um, That's part of why these keystone habits work, is because when we get one thing right, when we have one little success, even if it's something small, like exercising or making our bed, you know, it equips us to believe that we can change, right? To believe that we can make a difference, that things can be different in our lives. Um, by the way, I, I'm pretty convinced this is exactly how Jesus teaches personal transformation in the Bible, right? So when Jesus meets people in the Bible, he very rarely, almost never, in fact, gives them a whole life prescription. He never says, um, here's, here's the um, 613 rules of Torah, obey them all and go out and have fun. Um, he always says, hey, here's one thing for you. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit salvation? And Jesus says, what's in the commandments? And he says, you know, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen from anybody, blah, blah, blah. And he says, one thing you lack. Sell all you have to the poor and then come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. He's saying, hey, this is your keystone habit, right? If you work on uh, your possessions, if you work on the hold your material things have on you, um, everything else will follow. Uh, Jesus um, meets the um, woman at the well uh, who has the five husbands. Um, and he, he doesn't call her out on all of her sin, right? I don't imagine for a minute that she's um, sin-free except for the proliferation of men with which she's been connected. He just says, hey, I want you to be aware this is the thing you've got to work on, right? This is your keystone habit. If this gets better, everything gets better. Um, 
full of Zacchaeus, right? Remember when Zacchaeus climbs on the sycamore tree to see Jesus and Jesus walks along and uh, Zacchaeus comes down and he says, I'm going to stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give all that I've stolen back uh, and pay fourfold what I've stolen and give half everything I have to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation has come to your house. Um, Zacchaeus doesn't, um, at that moment, stop sinning completely, right? He's not a sinless guy. Um, but Jesus says, hey, this is what needed to happen, right? This was where transformation had to begin in your life. When Jesus preaches uh, the Sermon on the Mount and he says, um, you know, if you, uh, if you have anger in your heart, you've already murdered your brother. If you have lust in your heart, you've already murdered, you've already committed adultery. Um, he's saying, hey, you know, for you, maybe this is your thing, right? Maybe you need to work on lust. Maybe you need to work on anger. Maybe you need to work on loving your enemies. That's not the whole Christian life. The whole Christian life isn't in the Sermon on the Mount, much less... Um, it's not even in the Gospel of Matthew, right? It's in the whole Bible you need for the whole Christian life. But maybe this is your thing, right? Maybe you need this one keystone habit. If you can start transformation, even with something small, uh, then um, that transformation begins to spiral, right? It begins to, uh, it's, like a, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. Um, okay, uh, does that make sense? Okay, great. Um, what are we doing? Oh, right. Uh, so uh, the, the, the first bit about, about organizational change, which also is true for our own lives, is this idea that sometimes we have to identify a, a keystone habit, one thing that we can transform in an organization or in our lives um, that, that, that sort of cascades, uh, has a cascading effect. Uh, the other thing that's really critical is um, to have like big transformation. Is we've got to have something uh, I'm calling expanded community. And expanded community just means... Um, that, that to affect the transformation on the level that Scripture calls us to affect it, I'm not going to do it with just me and my friends. It's going to take more than that. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of research about um, something called strong ties and weak ties. Um, a, the, a strong tie basically is a, is a close friendship, right? So think about uh, your, um, you know, your family, your closest friends, the people you spend your most time with. Those are your strong ties. Right? Um, and... and, and You'll do anything for somebody who's a strong tie, right? If, if you have a, a strong tie friend who comes and says, I need help, you're, you're there. No problem. Um, a weak tie is an acquaintance, right? A weak tie, it's, it's the difference between your friends and your Facebook friends, right? That's the best way I can describe it, right? I mean, I love my Facebook friends, but I don't talk to this, I mean, unless some, some of you are high. <laughs> uh, but uh, I got hundreds of Facebook friends I don't talk to on a regular basis, right? Who are friends from high school or college, uh, who I just don't see that often. Uh, I care about them, but they're not part of my regular life, right? Those are weak ties. They're, they matter to me, but they don't matter to me like my wife or my kids or like some of you that I see on a regular basis, right? Um, there's a lot of research about the fact that, that real transformation in societies tends to happen when strong ties and weak ties come together and, and that we undervalue the importance of weak ties. Um, so think for a minute about the, the, the last time you, you found a job, uh, I, I, and think about like, how you got that job. My, my guess is um, that you, well, there, there's a couple possibilities, I guess. Uh, maybe you just applied in a vacuum, right? Maybe you just said, hey, here's a job I'm going to apply that's great. But a lot of us apply for jobs because we have some kind of connection, right? Um, that connection usually isn't a strong tie. It's not usually my, my brother inviting me to come work. It's usually my brother's nephew's best friend's college roommate that I know that's got this connection, right? Um, those weak ties are really critical. Um, those weak ties are, are often how we find our employment um, because they're so much larger, right? I, I have so many more weak ties. I can only have but so many strong ties in my life. Uh, so uh, the, the idea is uh, that, that transformation in societies happens when those, those two connections come together. Uh, Rosa Parks was kind of famously the, the instigator of the Montgomery bus boycott that led to desegregation of the bus lines and really in many ways kick-started the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks uh, was on a bus and uh, she was sitting in a section that was, um, actually it wasn't for whites only, it was sort of this middle ground. And um, then more white people got on the bus and she was supposed to get up and leave her seat and go to the back um, because the middle ground was now needed for the white people. And she refused to get up. Uh, and so she was arrested uh, and she was impetus for this huge transformation. The thing is, Rosa Parks wasn't the only black woman who was arrested for sitting on a bus where she shouldn't sit on a bus um, in Montgomery, Alabama, wasn't the only black woman to be arrested for sitting on a bus that year, in fact. Um, what made Rosa Parks so significant was because she had strong and weak ties across her whole community, right? So Rosa had friends, close friends, strong ties, 
um, who were both um, laundry workers and college professors. Uh, and, and she was so connected that when people heard that Rosa was in prison, they were willing to get out and, 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 and do something about it. But maybe more important than her strong ties were her weak ties. Rosa was connected to all kinds of associations, uh, to, the, to the PTA and to uh, women's community groups and to her church. And she had all these ties. So there were hundreds of people who knew Rosa. And all of a sudden it wasn't, hey, this is just another person. It, it was, again, mostly African-Americans who were involved in the boycott initially. Another, another one of us who's been arrested wasn't a big deal. But Rosa being arrested was a big deal, right? And because they knew her and cared about her, the people began to mobilize uh, and, and, the, and the rest is kind of history. Um, the, the church is supposed to be one of those places where we bring those things together, right? Where strong ties and weak ties are brought together. By the way, Jesus does this a lot. Um, so, you know, Jesus has a best friend. He's, uh, I, I call this the one, the 12, the 70, right? He, uh, actually, the one, the three, the 12, the 70. He's got a best friend who is Peter, right? Okay. Uh, and then he's got, he's got the three, right? Which are um, Peter, James, and John. Then he's got the 12, right, the 12 apostles. Then he's got the 70, right, in in the Gospel of Luke, he's got 70 disciples that he thinks are sufficiently discipled to send out as ambassadors around uh, in front of him as he's going uh, on his mission work. Um, I cannot imagine Jesus has the same relationship with the 1, the 3, and the 12 as he does with the 70, right? Um, Some of those are strong ties. Some of those are weak ties. Jesus has a relationship with the 5,000, right? Uh, The the 5,000 people who come and eat uh, the meal at the, uh, with the loaves and fishes that are multiplied. Jesus definitely doesn't have strong ties to all of them, right? He's got weak ties. Um, they know somebody that knows somebody that heard about what Jesus was doing that came to see him. Um, and, and you have to leverage all of those things to, to pull a movement off. Uh, and then the, the, the last bit, of, the last sort of step for um, sort of organizational change or becoming a real movement is um, what our author calls self-propulsion. And it's this idea that strong ties and weak ties um, eventually still aren't enough to enact like big change. You have to have a movement that's self-propelling. Um, so there's a, there's a moment um, in the Montgomery bus boycott where uh, Dr. King, it's, it's two months into the boycott or so, and it's getting hard. Uh, and what initially began with this great energy is beginning to, to, to slack off. People are uh, uh, calling Dr. King, who's been sort of appointed to be head of this boycott movement, and complaining and, uh, and lamenting how much money it's costing them and how difficult it is. And they're, they keep saying, when, when is this going to be over and nothing's going to happen? And um, the various sort of white supremacist groups are uh, ramping, ratcheting up the pressure in some pretty scary ways. Uh, and one night, Dr. King is preaching at his church and someone comes up and interrupts his sermon and says, hey, your house has been firebombed. Uh, where his wife and kids are. And so he runs home and, and sees that his front porch has been destroyed by this bomb. Thankfully, his wife and children are okay. Uh, but there's this huge number of uh, his friends and neighbors that are outside his house that are gathering. And, and the crowd keeps growing and growing. Uh, and uh, there's a group of um, white police officers who are surrounding the house who are um, um, becoming increasingly worried about the size of this crowd. And so uh, eventually the the um, police chief, who actually um, is a, the leader of the White Citizens Council, which was a, a racist group that had been denouncing the boycott and, and sort of threatening the lives of some of the boycotters. Um, the police chief comes to Dr. King and says, you've got to do something. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't step in in some way, um, this is going to be a riot and people are going to get hurt. And so Dr. King gets up on the remnants of his porch um, uh, and he says, uh, brothers and sisters, listen to me. And people kind of quiet down. And he says, the Bible says, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Uh, and then he begins to preach this sermon where he says, you know, we're here uh, to, uh, to transform our society not by the sword but by the cross. Um, that this isn't a war, this isn't embraced. Uh, and it's not a new sermon, right? It's the same thing he's been preaching for the last several months. Uh, but, but now he's standing on the porch of his own house, which was bombed when his wife and kids were there. Um, and it gets, this, it gets this power it didn't get before. Uh, and and the, the story is that after, uh, after he finishes the sermon, the crowd just kind of quietly goes back home. Um, but the next day, um, more and more people sign up for the boycott. Uh, and then um, as the pressure continues to ramp up, um, uh, 
a group of, of boycotters are arrested because they're violating some stupid law about taxis. And um, I think 12 people are arrested. And something like 120 people go to the courthouse and ask to be arrested too. Um, because they're just not afraid anymore. Uh, and actually, Dr. King goes on to say that uh, uh, it's a year-long boycott before they're successful. Uh, and he says, uh, as, the, as the racists and as the, the power workers in the town ramped up their attacks on the African-Americans, they couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And he said, they didn't realize that they were dealing with Negroes who'd been freed from fear. Um, the, the point is, it became a self-propelling movement. The point is, they, they took these new ideas that Dr. King had been preaching, and they saw them lived out in his life, and they decided to live them out in their lives. Right? And all of a sudden, they were part of this new culture where, um, where their society was enforcing uh, this, this nonviolent Christ-like behavior, where their society was enforcing uh, this idea that suffering uh, for Christ and for each other was part of the, the path of, of salvation that they were supposed to live out. Uh, it wasn't just a sermon anymore, right? It was their life. Uh, and their strong ties and their weak ties led them to that point, but then they had this new identity. This is what's supposed to happen with the church, right? That, yeah, sure, it's great that a few people knew Jesus for a while, um, but now there's 2.4 billion of us. And if the church is going to be who the church is supposed to be, it's going to be because we embrace this new culture, this new way of life that Jesus has described, uh, that calls us to a different set of values, that calls us uh, to a different set of expectations and a different set of habits. Uh, and ultimately, you know, if we want to be an organization that's changing the world, we do it through um, that, that self-propulsion. We do it through internalizing a new set of, uh, of cultural ideas and habits that, that are Christ-like, um, that allow us to um, stick with his model of faith and life when faith and life get hard. Um, so I, I want to think, I'm, I know I'm running out of time and I want to take some questions, but um, just really briefly, um, I, I wrote down some stuff in your handout about um, how I see us working on these sort of organizational changes, right? So um, uh, when I think about sort of small wins uh, and building keystone habits, um, for me in my life, reading the Bible was a small win. Right? For, for, uh, when I started reading the Bible for the first time, it was like, oh my gosh, this is changing my life. Um, I, I, I think my goal was to read Philippians, which was a four-chapter book, right? Philippians is real easy to read. Uh, so I got a small win, and I said, oh my gosh, that was incredible. I love reading the Bible. Right? I, mean, I, I don't understand what the heck it's saying at all, but it was really cool. Um, uh, and then reading the Bible became a keystone habit for me. Right? In college, when I first began reading the Bible, and it's been, I spent over a year reading the Bible before I got through it, that was a keystone habit. Um, because everything in my life began to change because I was spending time with God every day. Um, so we're doing this new, new movement readings in, 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 as a church because I really believe that can be a small win in a keystone habit, right? Every time you drop a rock in the jar, that's your small win, right? It's not a, not a big deal that you finish Philippians, but it is a big deal, right? Um, and the hope is that that reading of, of Scripture on your own becomes a keystone habit that changes other habits. Um, as I think about kind of this expanded community, you know, we're, we, we've got a, um, we, we've got a, a, a wig a wildly important goal of, of increasing our youth participation. Um, and we've asked every one of our ministry areas, every one of our committees, every group of leaders in the church to be thinking about how we engage high school and middle school kids more thoroughly in the life of our church. Um, you know, that's a keystone habit for our community, right? I mean, my hope is that, um, yeah, I want to see more kids in our, in our church, but if, I'll be honest, at the end of the day, we have a lot more youth group kids in our church and everything else is dying, I'm not going to be happy. Uh, I think that could be one lever that we pull that changes everything, right? That if, if we come away deciding, hey, um, we, we found a way to reach kids in a way we never reached them before, I think we'll be better at reaching their parents. I think we'll be better at reaching their younger siblings. I think we'll be better at reaching their grandparents. I mean, I, th I think we'll be better at missions because we'll have those kids in our church that can help us with that. I mean, uh, I think it could, could be a lever that pulls everything, right? It could be a keystone habit for our congregation. Um, as I think about sort of that expanded community that allows for organizational change, you know, we did those Lenten supper, small groups last year. We're going to do, you'll hear more about this week, but supper clubs coming up, um, these mission trips we do to Nicaragua or to Camp Luther. I mean, all of those are about working on our community, right? About saying, how do we get more strong ties and weak ties in our community so we know each other better so that we can be ultimately that community that has a culture that enforces habits uh, that, that um, can accomplish what the civil rights movement accomplished that can be a, a tool for Christ to change our world. Um, so, you know, we're working on some of this stuff, even if we don't know we're working on some of this stuff. Um, 
But, but I, really believe that, um, I really believe that stuff that we apply to our own lives, we can apply to our church, we can apply to our businesses, we can apply to, apply to our community groups, um, that, that those same tools for habit formation can help us change things beyond ourselves. Um, yeah, I know I'm running over. Questions about um, that component? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, the question is, is the most fundamental key thing to have it for the church prayer? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I, weeks, uh, months ago, I, I did a sermon, I talked about revival, and uh, I mentioned that there's, to the best of my knowledge, there's never been any revival in the history of the church that didn't begin with prayer. Uh, there's never been any point in the, in the history of the church where uh, the church experienced growth, spiritual growth and numerical growth, without prayer coming first. Um, and absolutely. And actually, I, I misspoke, because I said earlier that... Um, the keystone habit for me was reading scripture. It was really quiet times, right? Which for me is, I read scripture and I pray. Those two things always go together. Yeah, great. Thanks, Bob. Excellent point. Good. Other, other comments or thoughts or questions about any of that stuff? It's your big chance. Um, so uh, two, two things before we close. Um, uh, I want to encourage you to keep thinking about um, whatever your habit is you're working on. Um, and I mentioned before, but I want to say it again. I'm not so much vested in whether or not you're successful at getting to bed on time or whatever else. I'm vested in you learning the skill of habit transformation, right? Uh, and, and so I think, even though we're not going to meet, this is the end of our class, I, I really encourage you to keep working on that. And I'd love to have conversations with you. Some of you guys have done that. To say, hey, Jim, I'm, this is my habit. You know, I can't seem to get it. What do I need to do? Give me some advice. Not that I have great advice, but at least we can talk about it together. Um, community helps. Um, so, so keep working on your habit, mostly so you can learn that this, this process of starting and uh, an ending habits. Um, and then I, I really encourage you as well um, how we as a community are called um, to build these sort of communal habits that allow us change not our lives but our world as well, right? That, that the church has always been um, the hope of the world. It's always been the tool that Christ left behind to transform the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of heaven, uh, and so um, the, the same skill that we use to, to work on our own habit transformation, we can use to work on transforming our church, uh, transforming our communities, transforming our world. So um, maybe be in prayer this week about, and I think Bob's right about it, it begins with prayer. Maybe be in prayer this week about how you're called in and out, in and out of the church to be working on transformation beyond yourself, right? That, that how you're called to be part of, of organizational change, um, whatever that looks like. That could be in your business could be uh, in your friendship group, that could be in your Bible study, that could be in the church, be bigger than the church. Um, but I really believe that Christ calls us uh, to be changed and then to change the world. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, so uh, please let me know afterwards. I'd love to hear any questions. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to view it, uh, we, this is the end of our habits class and we're done with life for a while. So we'll be back in May, which is a long time. But part of that is because uh, over the next month, we're going to talk about these supper clubs. I hope you'll get involved in one of those. We want you to um, work on those, that community uh, in our own church family so that um, we're a more effective tool for Christ in the world. Uh, let's, let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks uh, for this night. We give you thanks for the promise of the Holy Spirit who lives inside us, who allows us uh, to experience the transformation of, uh, of becoming a new creation in you. And we give you thanks for uh, the gift of um, the gift of a purpose beyond ourselves. Uh, that, that we're called not only to, to write our lives, but to write your world. And so we pray that uh, this week you would equip us with a vision of, uh, of your kingdom as it's supposed to be. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that we'd be able to utilize just some of these skills uh, to bring that vision to fulfillment. Uh, and we do pray, Lord, that uh, as we seek to be um, your agents of change, as we seek to be um, the church as the church is supposed to be, um, you would continually remind us that it's not about us. It's about, um, it's about your life in us. And so we pray, Lord, that, that you would shine out of us far beyond anything that we might accomplish, that, that the world might see your light in us and marvel uh, at the promise of God Emmanuel. That's in Christ's holy and powerful name we pray.
Amen. Go in pieces.